this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how things in Montpelier shake out for the rest of us. And this week, we will be talking about recreational cannabis. So stay tuned for that. I'm I'm looking forward to this conversation. And joining us for the conversation is regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, straight from the State House. Hey, Emily. Hi, Olga. Good to be with you from my committee room here, actually. Well, that's apropos, since one of the reports we might be talking about today was submitted to your committee, I believe. You're in the right place at the right time. I, in fact, spent most of yesterday hearing Pepper, who's joining us today, tell me about it. Okay, cool. Well, Pepper, yes. Uh, James Pepper, who is chair of the Cannabis Control Board. I think this is your second uh, foray on the happy hour. So, so glad you can join us today. Yeah, thank you. In fact, the last time I joined you, I stayed up all night in the ER with my uh, two-year-old yeah. twin who had just swallowed the biggest rock I'd ever seen. Um, so hopefully there's a little bit more pep in my step today. <laughs> Any rocks since? So far, no. There's been a couple of crayons up the nose, but you know, I think he's learned his lesson on the rocks. <laughs> That's good. You know, it's, it's okay to make mistakes if you learn from them. Isn't that what we're always told? <laughs> Well, thank you, Pepper, for joining us. For those who don't know, Pepper is chair of the Cannabis Control Board, which is a three-member board. I believe Kyle Harris and Julie Hulbert, is that how you say Julie's last name? Hulbert, yes. Hulbert, thank you, are also on the panel. And there is also a 14-member advisory committee as well. And this is the board tasked with setting up our regulated recreational cannabis market. Say that three times fast. Pepper, just quickly, what has the board been working on? And kind of a little snapshot of where you are right now in your work. Let's see, the board was really kind of kicked things into gear in late April, early May. We've met 24 times as a board since then. Our advisory committee was seated in August and we've met, we divided them up into subcommittees based on their expertise and really set them to work with the help of our consultants in the, at the direction of the board. They've met um, between the advisory committee and their various subcommittees 70 times since September is when they really started meeting. And they helped make recommendations by looking at other states, by seeing kind of the pitfalls, the unintended consequences of certain policy decisions. They've made recommendations to the board on every aspect of the regulated market. And so we as a board have been taking those recommendations, drilling down, making sure that they make sense for Vermont and um, voting to approve them. And so as we stand here today on November 17th, we have three of our four rules or three of our five rules drafted. And when I say five, I mean, these are comprehensive rules about compliance, enforcement, licensure, um, what needs to appear on an application. And we're getting ready to file, pre-file them with um, the kind of administration and then with the secretary of state's office. Wow. And we should just remind listeners that I think for a lot of people, it feels like we've been talking about cannabis regulation for a very long time. And so it feels like it's been this long drag, slow, slow slog. At the same time, there's a May 1st deadline about licensing to allow, that would be when I believe medical dispensaries would be able to to sell recreational uh, cannabis. 
So the timelines were set in 2020, um, kind of to help motivate us into action. And uh, yeah, so May 1st is when the application window opens for what are called the integrated licenses. Those are only available to the existing Vermont dispensaries, but it allows kind of those kind of three companies uh, that own those dispensaries to own all five license types, including the retail portion. So they'll be cultivating and then they'll be able to open open their doors on uh, April 1st. Or, April or 1st May or 1st. May 1st. Okay. Sorry, sorry, May 1st. Yeah. May 1st. Sorry. Yep. So there is a little bit of a ticking clock. Yeah, the, the clock is is certainly ticking. I mean, it's really hard to say whether or not that May 1st deadline is realistic. We do have a path forward. If we do get our rules pre-filed and then, you know, the administration gets the way in and then the legislature gets the way in and we have these public comment periods throughout. And then, of course, there's just the, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of having a licensing portal and having compliance and enforcement staff in order to make sure that kind of everything is happening the way that it's supposed to. But, you know, from a very technical perspective, there is a path forward that allows um, not just the integrated licenses to open their doors on May 1st, but us to start issuing small cultivator uh, licenses on May 1st as well. And that's the more important deadline for me Mm -hmm. in that it's a less arbitrary deadline. It's that we want to make sure that small cultivators can start crops in keeping with the growing season in time to be really getting in, you know, getting in this season. And I know that that's where a lot of your pressure was coming from Pepper, because through no fault of your own, you were very like getting started. It was that, you know, appointments were very held up and because appointments were held up, your fee schedule was held up. And so everything, everything is sort of all in front there. Right. But, but, but you are absolutely correct, Emily, that, we have a very short growth cycle in Vermont outdoors. And so if we don't start licensing small cultivators until, you know, midsummer, then they lose the whole year or they have to go inside. So, you know, we really want to encourage small cultivators in outdoor cultivation. And so we really have to kind of push through to try and get May 1st, you know, have that be our date. Just quickly, Pepper, I would, and and Emily too, because I I believe you heard from Pepper yesterday, testimony in your committee. Just quickly, what is really key for people to understand right now about Vermont's recreational market as it stands now? Well, you know, I think we had um, a group out of Massachusetts come in and really dig into our usage rates, our regional usage rates as well, some from some of our bordering um, states that might come to Vermont to purchase, as well as just our general tourism rates. And, you know, they estimated that the demand in Vermont could be supplied by roughly 450,000 square feet of canopy. And I know it's hard to kind of just throw a number like out there, like that out there and really imagine it. But that's the kind of target that we are looking for in Vermont to supply the both the regional and tourist and in-state demand. So what do we do about that? You know, we have a commitment. It's uh, written directly into our enabling legislation. It's kind of near and dear to all the board members' hearts to focus on small craft cultivation. Not only does that kind of help shift the illicit or legacy market into the regulated space, it also builds upon Vermont's real competitive advantages. Um, you know, we've never been able to really compete 
on volume in this state, um, but we are able to compete by creating a value-added, high-quality craft product. And the way you get there is by having a lot of competition. And so um, what we want is to not rely on the, the kind of bigger players, the larger cultivators that really kind of grow one or two strains and they grow, you know, 20,000 square feet of it. We really want lots of small diversified farmers coming into this industry and using, you know, the tools that they know how um, to kind of create a craft product. And so I guess the big kind of takeaway for the board is how we get there is we keep our license tiers small. So our largest tier in Vermont is probably a third of the size of one of the smaller tiers in, in Massachusetts. We keep our fees low. Um, we, t- we keep our kind of regulations and the regulatory costs as low as we can while still maintaining our commitment to kind of environmental sustainability. And we only focus on the small cultivators first. So the kind of the thing that I mentioned uh, yesterday in committee really is that what we want to do is open up these smaller tiers. We have 1,000, th- a 2,500 a 5,000 level tier or 10,000, open those up first and see how close we get to that 450,000 square feet of canopy. And if we get there based upon those small cultivators, then we never need to open up the larger tiers. So that's kind of the, the way that we're going about trying to really encourage a kind of diversified craft market in Vermont. Thank you. Emily, what is, after listening to testimony yesterday, what are some of your key takeaways? I just wish everyone could see this wild, wild spreadsheet that the consultants who um, are predicting our canopy needs develop. There's a random number, number generator in it. It's like really, it was an amazing sight to behold. And yeah, people should tune into that testimony if they want to get a sneak peek of it. But all that to say, it was, you know, these numbers are based on really thoughtful analysis of Vermonters' behaviors, of regional behaviors, you know, the folks who are going to come from right over the border to purchase aren't considered tourists. Tourists have different purchasing patterns than locals. We had a fun conversation about sort of everyone who's growing for their own personal use and how those folks would probably not exclusively give that up, but would hop back and forth between sort of purchasing and home use. And so that was the first thing that stood out to me was just like how how sort of how scientific and sort of economic model predicted this all was. And I appreciated that. And then the other piece was just this in continued thoughtfulness. You know, we, we often build intent into our legislation and the intent gets pretty quickly lost in administration. And I was really excited about how thoughtful the administration of this is in keeping with the intent of we want this to be an industry that is really specifically supportive and focused on small growers who can afford to be in the industry, who are gonna have minimal environmental impacts, who are really doing this, you know, I'm embarrassed to say it this way, but like the Vermont way. And that there was a commitment to that in both how the fee structures were developed in how the tiers are developed in what levels of tiers will be opened when. And I was really, I was so excited about that. Um, That sort of, there's the policy first and the revenue coming after. And I think that's going to be a really, really hard line for us all to sustain. I think a lot of people, maybe a decade ago, when this conversation was really starting to have legs, thought of this as like the magical cash cow that will save us all. Yeah, totally. And a lot of, 
Yeah. A lot of, I mean, part of it is that like the market's actually not going to be that big because there aren't that many people here, but part of it is that we, we need to keep this affordable for the growers. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that this stays the tension between moving people out of the illicit market and into the commercial market means that we need to really be focused on low fees, on decently low excise taxes. Um, we need to be supporting those businesses with a really positive regulatory structure, really, really supportive, positive regulatory structure. And so I really appreciated how the board came forward with recommendations that were in keeping with those policy goals. That's what really me the most. Thank you, Emily. I just want to quickly ask a clarifying question. You said in the administration of this, and I just want to be clear because we often refer to um, the administration as Governor Scott and his team. So I just want to make sure that you mean the administration as in how this is being put together and practically put into place. Is that what you mean? I mean, how it is administered, Thank you. the verb of it, but the Cannabis Control Board is under the purview of the administration with a big A, right, Pepper? We're an, ind- we're an independent executive branch agency, very similar to like the Public Utility Commission or the Natural Resources Board. And so your budget still needs to go through those? Our budget, uh, you know, gets recommended by the governor. So if we need something, the, his fifth floor is the first place we go. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you. Pepper, I, I'm really intrigued what Emily said about policy first and, and money second. And I, I think that is such a, a good point because we have talked about in regards to this uh, new market, what it would mean financially for the state. And I think for a lot of people, that's been, for lack of a better term, almost a bargaining chip to get other people comfortable with the idea of recreational use. So I'm curious for you, Pepper, as the board was going through all these issues and you're kind of looking at this policy and you're looking at the legislation, how did you keep that line? How did you hold that line between how do we have something that moves people into a regulated market versus kind of that pressure to make sure it makes money? Yeah, you know, I'm kind of uh, coming at it from a different angle, which is, yeah, you know, we missed the big revenue kind of, if we were the only state that was legalized in 2015 in the East Coast, then sure, we could have probably made a lot of revenue. But I actually think that if we have the craft market that we have for beer, for uh, maple syrup, for cheese, then we'll we'll hit some very interesting uh, revenue goals, uh, as opposed to relying on a few big cultivators that kind of make a generic brand of cannabis. And then you know, as soon as there is federal legalization, they're all of a sudden kind of not special anymore. You know, Vermont doesn't have anything special baked into its DNA. And so for me, what we need to really do is focus on keeping our fees low, keeping these barriers to entry low for these smaller players and creating a kind of a very unique dynamic here in Vermont that people will travel, even people from Massachusetts or New York, or New Jersey, the places that are legal states will come to Vermont because of the special thing that we have to offer. I mean, our tax projections are contained within the report. You know, I, can, I would just say as a caveat, they're probably optimistic compared to where JFO came out, our joint fiscal office, that, you know, joint fiscal office has to be, I think, a little bit more conservative in their estimates and in their assumptions because they don't want to kind of promise money that may never materialize. But, you know, I, I think our economic model is 
kind of a gold standard right now. And so, you know, we're looking at, you know, after we kind of have a little bit of a ramp up, we're looking at roughly 40 million, I would say, in revenue annually, kind of a sustained revenue source there. And it, it kind of, it peaks and then it kind of goes down a little bit once New York, you know, comes online, which um, will kind of cut out a lot of the kind of border consumption. But, you know, I mean, and we only achieve that. I really believe that we only achieve that if we have a product and a market that is special. I want to talk about revenue, but I want to talk about sort of that special market first, because that's what I meant by sort of policy first. The idea that if we do this really well, that then the revenue follows from that. Back before when Commissioner Pichak actually was able to focus his energies on the Department of Financial Regulation before he became the COVID statistics czar, he came on the show and we spent a lot of time talking about how the insurance... like positive regulation and administration that's set up to regulate an industry in a really supportive, firm way that really focuses on quality over quantity and has the resources to do that can create an industry that is a national leader. And I really, you know, I really see the potential for that in our cannabis industry and I'm excited about it. And you have done just like this, you know, the staffing job that has happened over there. And I don't know if, you know, our listeners probably don't know, but it's become something of an inside joke in Montpelier about how the Cannabis Control Board is like grabbing all the best staff from all over state government and just like sucking them into their fold. Um, I think if you continue, you might start like getting some challenges with people wanting to give you any more money, but I, it is, (laughs) it seems like a really fun place to work. I'm trying to take people from a wide variety of places so that, um, yeah, we don't, annoy anyone agency. We annoy everyone equally, you know. <laughs> but I do have some plans for, you know, poaching a few more people as we move forward. I'm you know, I hate to say, I hate to tip my hat. I think you already did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you want to say about um revenue, Emily? As we've talked about before, there's a lot of people who were concerned with a recreational market um, because they thought that it would increase consumption. Mm-hmm. I think Coming from where I come from in Brattleboro, I feel like very aware that everyone who ever wanted to be high is already high. And this is just a change in where they'll buy it. And it'll be a safer place to buy it. But, you know, there was a lot of sort of political compromises that had to happen with the revenue in order for us to get as far as we did. And I think there's still, I'm still sitting with questions about those. So there's a huge, there's a bunch of million dollars. I don't remember how many they're going to Vermont after school, a percentage of the money goes to Vermont after school, which I'm really excited about. I think that's great. And then there's another chunk of money that just goes to straight prevention dollars. That's 10 million. Is that right? Yeah. It's, it's 30% of the excise tax, but it's capped at 10 million. And then the, yeah. the after school program is just the entirety of the sales tax. So the six, 6% sales tax. So whatever that ends up being, will go to funding after school programs. And there's a lot of research that after school programs serve really positive long-term prevention goals and prevention from all risky behaviors. There's huge amounts of evidence that after school programs reduce risky behaviors in youth. There's very little evidence that prevention programs do that Hmm. because they're just not upstream enough. It's no fault of the prevention programs. It's that they're, not as holistic as other things. And so I'm really, I'm curious to see how they could even possibly spend that money when they start spending that money. So that's, that's an interesting part of this whole thing to me. 
Mm-hmm. What do you think, Pepper? I'm really excited about the after school piece of this. We heard from Holly Morehouse, who runs Vermont After School, and they did uh, just survey. And, and, you know, there's only enough spots at after school programs to serve 50% of the kids that are looking for after school. So not even just 50% of Vermont kids. It's a subsection of that people that are looking for that service. And that's just a sad statistic, honestly. Um, You know, it's just like uh, you said, Emily, this is a time between the hours of kind of three and 5 p.m. where kids have very little supervision. They are bored, you know, and they engage in risky behavior. I remember being that age. You know, that was the time when kids are experimenting with um, these substances and that, you know, what the after school program does is it excites their interests. It helps them develop that executive function. And, you know, it makes kids feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. And to me, the after school programs is probably the single best investment that we can make um, using this money. I, of course, you know, my wife runs an organization called Let's Grow Kids. So I obviously I've drank the Kool-Aid on the return on investment and the benefits of early childhood education. But, you know, if you're thinking about a real nexus with cannabis, I think that the after-school programs is an incredible investment to make with that money. Me too. And the the sort of other piece of the after-school puzzle is this, is a connection to loving adults outside the household and sort of, you know, small M mentor programs that really it's an opportunity for youth to be around a lot more adults um, who are paying attention to them and their life and are there for them. So that all feels super duper good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another contentious, sorry, did you no, want to go? No, ahead? go ahead, Emily. Thank you. Another contentious piece of this is how much of the money goes to towns. Ah. And so, yeah. And so that's an especially fun one down in Brattleboro right now where Tim Wessel from our select board has been advocating really strongly for more of the money to go to towns and Senator White, who's our Wendell County Senator, has been a longtime advocate of that. There have been lots of op-eds flying around. And for folks who don't know, Tim Wessel is on the uh, 14-member advisory committee. Yes. Cannabis advisory committee, yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. As a member, um, he's sort of represented from the Vermont League of Cities and Towns, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And... It's this really interesting dynamic that we, so one of the, there's lots of reasons to give money to towns. Towns need money. So there's one reason. Towns need more money than they have, and this is money. And so maybe we should give them some of this money. That makes sense, right? Because there's new revenue and everyone's excited and they want it for the things that need money and towns need money. More specifically, we created this mechanism um, as part of this compromising around how to get cannabis passed that said that towns need to opt in in order to host um, establishments. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, we created a situation where we then, in a lot of cases, in a lot of regions of the state, not Brattleboro, we are going to need to incentivize communities to opt in to cannabis market if we want to move people out of the illicit market. Because we know that There's an illicit market all over the whole state, whether towns opt in or not. And so when towns aren't opting in, we just sort of leave those areas of the state to the illicit or legacy market. And so making sure that individual towns are going to benefit from this is, and that we incentivize that in some way, um, I think is a legitimate reason why we might want to give more of the money to towns. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I, I was going to say that, you know, this was hotly debated in the, in the conference committee. This was a main sticking point between the House and the Senate. Um, this was actually the last thing that they had to work through in, their, in the conference committee before they passed the marijuana bill is do, do towns, how can towns share in the prosperity of this industry? And, you know, I think there was some question, well, they, they should be supported by fees. There should be a flat fee that towns can receive for every marijuana establishment application that they review. And that should be enough to support any sort of additional costs that there might that they may incur as a result of hosting one of these cannabis establishments. And so the, the Senate kind of went the other way, which is, well, just give them a piece of the revenue, give them some of the tax, you know, the better the whole industry does the more that they'll share in the prosperity. The legislature ended up uh, saying that the, there will be a fee, no, no kind of uh, additional tax revenue, but, and then the cannabis board shall recommend what that fee should be. So we heard, uh, we had, we held a municipal round table. We held a, we, we submitted a municipal survey, which we had a great response rate to. And we talked intensely about, well, what are these costs? Because every fee needs to be justified. You know, when, when we are submitting a fee recommendation, we also have to submit a recommendation for what it, what it's paying for. And we just could not get anywhere specific with the towns on what the actual costs of hosting a cannabis establishment are going to be. I mean, the closest we got are, is there going to have to be an accelerated repaving structure because of increased traffic? Is there going to have to be more patrols from local law enforcement um, because of potential thefts or public nuisance of people consuming in public, some stuff along those lines. But everything was kind of amorphous and no one was giving us any real kind of concrete, um, this is what this fee is going to cover um, that would justify it for our recommendation. And so we said, essentially in the report, we gave two proposals. One is cap it at some kind of nominal amount, the amount that it would cost, that it would take kind of a town clerk or a select board to review an application and kind of either accept or deny it. And so we, we said either $100 uh, max or tie it to this uniform fee structure, which is something that uh, is used uh, quite a bit when you're reviewing Public Records Act requests. And so you're, you, you kind of just keep track of how long it actually takes you to review a document. And then you charge a certain set fee based upon your per minute um, review time. And so we thought that those were kind of good, you know, ways to kind of calculate how much we should charge for a local fee. Because again, you know, the, the, the cannabis establishments have to pay this fee. So we're trying to keep fees low. And then we said very clearly, you know, if the league of cities and towns or, if, you know, towns want to come to the legislature and explain what these additional justifications are, then that would provide kind of the, what they need to increase that fee. But and then we also recommended in our report that they get a piece of the excise tax, because just like you said, Emily, we need towns to have some incentive, not just to kind of opt in, but also to review these applications and review them quickly. And right now, if the administrative cost of reviewing them is too much, you know, they, they might just not, not do it for six months, you know? And so, um, we really want them to kind of feel the urgency of kind of getting one of these new establishments in their municipality. Thank you. We need to go to break and hear from some of our underwriters, but Pepper and Emily and I will be back in a moment. Stay tuned.
this second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on BCTV as well as our Montpelier Happy Hour Facebook page, Captivate page, and wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, hey, Emily, what do we need to remind listeners of? Well, it turns out that the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, not the radio station, nor the TV station, nor anyone's employer, or partner's employer, or best friend, or childhood romance. Very good. But it might be uh, the opinions of our pets. We don't know. They haven't told us yet. Turns out they can't talk. <laughs> Before the break, we were talking about municipalities and, and some of the incentives that we've been that that's on uh, deck for municipalities as far as tax revenues and that sort of thing. I want to talk quickly about the structure of fees. I think Emily, this was something that was really interesting for you. So this is like a policy tool that's really interesting to me. If it's really boring to listeners, I promise I'll try to keep it brief. There are different sort of ethoses of fees. So one is that the fees that an agency charges should be calibrated to exactly cover the costs of the agency that's administering the fees. That's one model. So um, the Department of Professional Regulation, that's how all their fees are set up. And they're really quite carefully calibrated for that. And then there are there's an ethos of fees that it should be as much as the market can bear. And that's what the Department of Financial Regulation does. And they bring in a lot of extra revenue above and beyond their own administration for those fees. And then there are fees that are used to change behavior. So you would do a high fee for something that you wouldn't want people to be engaging in. And that's sort of more in the category of things that, that we call sort of sin taxes, but that's, those are taxes and not fees. I just don't have a very good example of that type of punishing fee. And then there's the ethos of fees is that they should really cover the cost of the person filing the fee, like the cost of the actual administration on the other end of the fee. And so we see that um, with this sort of list of municipal fees that we have that sit with the secretaries of state's office that are recommended by the secretary of state. And that's usually calibrated to how much time, sort of the chart of accounts that Pepper mentioned, it's, the, um, it's to how much time someone would actually spend dealing with the fee. And there's this really fun mechanism, um, bill back mechanism that's sometimes built into that, say the Agency of Natural Resources uses for two, Act 250 permits. So if someone winds up spending like a lot, if a, someone in the administration winds up spending a lot more time dealing with a fee um, or paperwork related to a fee, then they can like add to the fee. But you know about that in advance. And so there's all these different ways of creating fees and none of them are arbitrary but they're all usually very tied to a specific policy goal and it's interesting in the cannabis control board that we're sort of picking and choosing different different fee ethos for the recommended fees that we have so far so the fees that we're talking about with the town are geared towards sort of the minimum cost that the town will incur in dealing with that thing Whereas the fees that we're talking about, the cannabis control bar charging to growers, we're really keeping it just sort of as low as the market can bear in order to cover as much of the costs of administration as we can, but not coming up to that. And so it's as we continue this conversation and we try to get sort of closer to covering the costs of the board, which is how it was originally intended, I think that's going to be a really important conversation about how, what the market will bear, what's appropriate and how much 
trouble, the more funding we put in the person in the organization that's administering the fees, like the Cannabis Control Board or say the Department of Financial Regulation, the more money and administrative capacity we give them, usually the less expensive and burdensome it is for the person who's actually the one paying the fee or um, filing the paperwork. It's sort of that difference between does the paperwork burden sit down the person filing and the person that's being filed too. And so that's like a fun part of this mix that we um, rarely surface when we talk about what appropriate fees and where that burden should sit. So I'm attempting to surface it here for anyone who wants to listen. Very interesting. I guess if you're a public administration professor. Which <laughs> yeah, no, I, I find that interesting, Emily, because I do often look at our, our budgets and our fees and our taxes as our priorities. And so I think it's always interesting to see how, how things are structured. So thank you for that. What are, there's been some discussion about licensing categories or the different types of licenses people can get. Can you quickly run through those for, for us? I'd be happy to. So there's um, six basic license types, really five, and then an integrated license, which is the summation of the other the other five. So we have cultivation licenses. We, in our report, have tiered these out to various uh, canopy sizes and have different fees based upon each size. Um, we've also separated them out between indoor and outdoor, and we've really tried to encourage, through the fee structure, outdoor cultivation. Um, we have one kind of small craft cultivator license that allows both indoor and outdoor grows, which would allow kind of a small cultivator to grow outdoors, you know, during the kind of spring, summer, early fall, and then move inside during the winter to allow them to kind of take advantage of uh, the indoor cultivation, you know, not, not have to run a, a deficit during those months. We have the before, retailer license. Wait, wait, before you run to the retailer license, I just want to sort of name that this last category, which I think was an innovation on your part, is the one that seems to me to be the most responsive to just like the way people live their lives when they're growing something. And I just think that's cool. So thanks for that. See, we were allowed to, we had the license types, which are defined by statute. And, you know, the legislature allowed us to create tiers within each license type. And then the legislature also specifically said you can make certain accommodations or give advantages to small cultivators. And so we're really trying to shoehorn this license type into that small cultivator tier, even though it's a little bit above because it's got, you know, an indoor and outdoor component. The canopy is a little bit above what the definition of small cultivator is, but we think that it's kind of a tier of small cultivator. So we're going to try and see how that flies essentially. But uh, we have two tiers of retail licenses. One um, that's the kind of traditional brick and mortar one where you would buy kind of flour or, you know, finished products. And then the other is kind of a, a, le- a lower cost one where you can buy seeds and clones, the kind of clippings. So, you know, if you're a home grower and you want to buy kind of a new variety of seeds or something, you can go to one of these other cultivation sites uh, or one of these other retailers. Um, we've got two tiers of manufacturing Tier one is allowed to kind of do whatever, use the kind of pro, the more explosive, more dangerous, potentially dangerous uh, extraction methods. And then we have a, a lower tier with a lower cost for people that are kind of making edibles or pre-rolls or kind of, you know, using the methodologies that aren't dangerous to public safety and don't require kind of um, some scrutiny. Um, 
Then we just have the kind of wholesaler license, the testing laboratory license, and then that integrated license. And are you considering, um, I think, Emily, or you mentioned that uh, you may be considering other types of licenses. That's right. And so, you know, one thing that usually kind of happens at the end of a legislative session is people come forward with a great idea and it's not, there's not enough time to really debate it. So it gets kicked over to some other body to think about it. And so, you know, we've been really digging into things like delivery licenses. There's a lot of different models of delivery around the country, and we're trying to figure out what makes the most sense for Vermont. It's certainly something that will increase accessibility, especially to these towns that don't opt in um, and residents of those towns. We're looking at kind of limited space retail licenses. This would be kind of like a store within a store, you know, maybe there's a sectioned off portion of a general store that would be allowed to sell, you know, small amounts of cannabis. We're looking at special event licensing, which is a pretty interesting concept for Vermont that has such a high tourism rate, especially around weddings and kind of the ski industry. This would be, of course, anything that we do in this front would have to start on a small scale. I just want to put that out front, but you know, this could be you have your kind of open bar or cash bar at a wedding and then kind of around the corner outside of public view, you could have a cash bar for cannabis and cannabis consumption. We're looking at just as a special event licenses, the on-site consumption, I think would be the last one that we're really looking at. And then also direct to consumer. So these small cultivators have really asked, they, you know, they say that the business model for them doesn't work so well unless they can kind of grow manufacture and sell on their farm at the farm stands, potentially at farmer's markets, if we can find a way to kind of really ensure that youth aren't, you know, being exposed to that kind of cannabis. But um, so that's something, something else, the direct consumer kind of farms, farm stands that we're looking at. And we actually have a report back to the legislature on, I think, all of those license types in January. Thank you, Pepper. Emily, anything else around regulation fees or licenses? No, I'm just, you know, the pieces, sort of the farm gate sales and those, you know, smaller sort of one-time permits, all of those things seems to really accommodate the way people live their lives. And I think they bring up a lot of questions around security on this. And so I'm curious about your thinking, you know, I've, I did a tour of Massachusetts retail shops over the last year. I mean, like I really, it was genuinely legislative visiting. I don't actually partake myself and was really struck by like the intensity of the layers of security compared to a liquor store. And I'm curious about your preliminary thinking on if our, you're going to require our retail establishments to have that level of security clearance and what that will look like. And then how you, I know this is really preliminary, but how you imagine something like that might be happening, what would be the equivalent at like a farm store? You know, it's it's funny because um, whatever we require as a board is going to be kind of a, a floor. And yet whatever the insurance companies and banking financial institutions require are going to require so much more than we ever would mm-hmm. contemplate for these retail establishments. They're still operating largely under the kind of FinCEN guidance, which is based on the coal memorandum. You know, this is a you know federally prohibited product. So the kind of regulatory compliance from even just the insurance companies and the financial institutions require very kind of programmed, kind of uniform, you know, security cameras, safe cash management, you know, depository account, 
you know, so we can't necessarily get around some of that stuff. Um, we are trying to, as far as kind of the small cultivator, you know, we're able to make accommodations there. And so what we've done for small cultivators is we've created a list of best security practices. And if you're a small cultivator, you need to pick one thing from that list. You know, it could be fencing, it could be motion activated lights, it could be I can't, you know, security cameras. There's, I think, five criteria that are best practices from other states. If you are a medium or large size cultivator, then you need to pick three or all five. And so it's kind of, we're trying to, you know, think about what the risk is to the public safety for a small cultivator versus a much larger cultivator and try and make the kind of appropriate adjustments to ensure that the compliance costs on the security side aren't just a fundamental barrier. So there are things that we need to work out on the direct-to-consumer sales. We do need to ensure that whatever is being sold uh, has been tested, has met all of the other kind of consumer safety regulations. We do need to make sure that there's cash management and theft protection, just like we would for a normal retailer. So, you know, there's just a few things I think we need to work out as a board before we can kind of just dive into direct consumer sales um, that, you know, a lot of our small cultivator community have been asking for. In the interest of time, I want to shift gears and talk about social equity criteria, because I know that was something that's at the heart of some of this regulation is how do we help folks who have been disenfranchised? or who have been harmed by the U.S.'s war on drugs and support them in this regulated market. Where do we stand on some of those criteria? So we have, um, the board has voted on criteria for social equity applicants. We've said, we think that, you know, what, what most states do is they kind of twist themselves into a pretzel trying to say kind of black people, people of color. They, they really try and say that without saying that um, because once you start kind of, using race-specific or non-race-neutral language in legislation, you really invite lawsuits. But we've been working with our attorney general, we've been working with other states, and it really does feel like we're at a point in you know the evolution of policing where we have enough data to show that Black people, Latinx, people of color have been targeted by police for drug-specific offenses. And so we're just going to say that you, if you're a person of color, or you have a cannabis-related conviction, then you then you are a social equity applicant, and you get certain benefits under the law. And those are kind of reduced and waived fees, priority review, expedited review, technical assistance and support in the application process. We also are one of the few states that has a community development fund that can provide um, low or no interest loans to social equity applicants. However, we as a board also recognize that not everyone who's been harmed by the war on drugs actually wants to turn around and become a cannabis license holder. And not everyone can, even if they were, even if they want to, because you know access to land, access to capital are fundamental barriers to joining this industry. So what we're also going to do in addition to that is have criteria and minimum standards that other applicants have to meet in order to, as a condition of their licensure. And again, what I would like to do, and we haven't discussed this as a board yet, is to have a menu of options of how you can support social equity and a diverse workforce in cannabis. 
And the smaller you are, the fewer the options you have to include in your application. But the larger you are, the more you have. And, you know, this can be incubator programs, accelerator programs. It can be grants uh, to social equity applicants. It can be community reinvestment plans. It can be paying a livable wage, having an inclusive hiring process, an inclusive contracting process. Um, we're still working out the details of this, but that's how we're going to try and make the whole industry, you know, kind of embed social equity principles into the entire industry as opposed to just the specific license holders. Thank you, Pepper. Emily, anything you want to add? No, I'm excited about all of those parts. I'm excited about how incredibly thoughtful this has mm -hmm. been so far. I know I've said that 12 times, but it's still exciting. The one piece that I think we, I want to highlight is that there's, we also set up this sort of start this fund that is for folks who want to start up cannabis businesses or technical assistance for cannabis businesses that's being funded out of the folks with the integrated licenses. And so I think that's also, I think there were a lot of concerns early on in sort of the unfair advantage that we were giving to the dispensaries as they moved into a retail market while sort of trying to acknowledge that like they're going to be the only people who are ready to go on the first day and there's something there. And so I really appreciate this compromise that we struck with how much money with how they're sort of really kickstarting a fund to bring more people into the market. And I'm hoping we can do more of that as we go. With various, yeah. We're just about out of time. Pepper, for the board, what's, what are the next steps or what are the next milestones for you? Well, you know, we're going to pull our full 14 member advisory committee together uh, this Friday to review our rules. Um, that will be live streamed. Um, you can find the link to that live stream and participate during our public comment period on our website, ccb.vermont.gov. This will be the initial preview of the rules, so no one's seen them yet. And, you know, we're going get, to get their feedback. Our plan then as a board is to have a board meeting next Tuesday to vote on them. And then we will start the kind of you know, the process of really doing public engagement. We are doing two social equity town halls uh, this week. One is in Winooski at the VSAC building on Thursday, tomorrow from 6 to 8 p.m. The next one is at the Waterbury State Complex on Saturday at 11 a.m. And this is really to kind of fully flesh out what our social equity program should look like in Vermont. Thank you. Those town halls going to be accessible via Zoom, or are you planning yes. to come down in our Sorry. no our, our neck <laughs> of the woods? <laughs> they will be available on Zoom. We actually were going to do Bennington College, but they canceled on us because of the COVID uh, numbers of of late. And we actually thought maybe we shouldn't be doing in person, but I think we're going to forge ahead, and you know we will have a virtual or remote component as well. And those those are available. Those links are available on our website. Okay, great. We'll include the links for anyone in Wyndham County that wants to participate. Yeah. Yep, thank great. you. Okay, so Emily, quickly, Monday, yes. you're going to be back in session. What's up with that? Yes, and Pepper, you're welcome to stay here for this conversation or disappear, whatever works for you. No, I'm, I'm excited to hear the plan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, as folks might remember, Brattleboro enacted a mask mandate a number of months ago. And when we did that, the governor said that we were, in fact, not allowed to do that, which was news to everyone in Brattleboro and news to our town attorney, news to the health department that suddenly didn't have this power. It was all very interesting to everyone. And since then, there have been increased calls for more masking protocols as our case rates have gone up. Um, we are not 
winning, winning the COVID battle. I don't think anyone needs me to tell them that one. And most public health experts say that masking is really the most effective way we can prevent transmission in addition to vaccines. And so under increased pressure, the governor has said that the legislature, he's willing to call the legislature back into session so that we can pass legislation that enables towns to pass mask mandates, even though, again, towns should already be able to pass mask mandates. And that is not something that either the governor nor the legislature should need to enable because it's actually already allowed in current law. But there are some arguments about that. So we're being called back into session to do this. The governor says that if we pass anything stricter, such as mask mandates that are tied to transmission rates, as is recommended by most public health experts, and as a few other states are doing, he will veto that legislation. And so we are going back in on Monday. I think there's still some question about whether we're just going to sort of follow along and do what the governor has asked of us or whether we're going to try to push forward with something that he will likely veto and then leave Vermonters worse off than they were before. It's really a it is a we are trapped between a rock and a hard place that the governor has placed for us quite politically skillfully, I will say. Um, and I am disappointed because in the end, I just want Vermonters to not get the COVID. Interesting. Well, I think, Emily, you and I and maybe another guest sh- after Monday should talk about this and see where we're at. That sounds like think, fun. Yeah, that sounds like a good can of worms that us geeky types like to talk about. Absolutely. Um, so, hey, Pepper. I want to toast to you and the work of the board. I don't know if Emily has anything she can toast with, but I do. Oh, perfect. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, I've got water. I will toast for both Emily and I. I just want to say thank you for your work. Thank you for your thoughtfulness and uh, good luck going forward. So cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you both again. Good to see you too, Pepper. Glad to have you back on the show. Take care, everyone. Take care, everyone, and have a great weekend. Bye-bye.